week or this weekend even, uh, conversations with individuals, not necessarily right now, yeah, conversations with individuals who really do not believe in the real meaning of Christmas. Ask yourself, as a reflection upon society, in comparison, how many Santa Clauses do you see around town as opposed to nativity scenes? Now, I don't, I don't have a problem with people using Santa as some you know, symbolism. There was a historical character who was a gift giver who celebrated Christ's birth by giving gifts and, and so on, and that's all been turned into legend, and as far as I'm concerned, it's relatively harmless. But, but when it becomes a distraction from that which is really true, then it's really just a crutch. Many in society want to celebrate the season because it's fun. Right? You get to eat great food. You get to sing some fun songs. You get to get together with family. And you'll notice that every Christmas special that, that comes on TV and things like that, or all Christmas movies, there's always somewhere in there the statement of, well, Christmas is all about, and then they fill in their own blank. Christmas is all about, they'll say, giving. Another time they'll say Christmas is all about loving. Another time it'll be Christmas is all about family, and people just fill in the blanks however they want to. So talk about what Christmas is really all about, and it seems that very easily we are losing track of what Christmas is really all about. And for those who know what it's all about, it seems like well we just keep saying this all over you know again and again, and and we forget, or you think that we've forgotten and we haven't forgotten. Well, but. I know that you have those conversations with individuals, family members, friends, co-workers, who really don't believe what we believe. They might be okay with celebrating something special, but they really don't believe that it means anything. And yet it's interesting, there must be something to it, because there are people who are very happy to put Santa Claus and reindeer and, or you know, six white boomers or whatever all over the place, at this time of year, but there are many who are much more hesitant, even resistant, even militarily opposed to having manger scenes around at this time of year. Why? Why is one perfectly okay and the other not? Well, let me just jump sideways to that. I remember um, hearing the testimony of a friend of mine at, at uni who uh, came to the States to, to study Bible from Romania. Now, he was part of the um, Communist Youth Party. I mean, from his, from his early days, he was drawn right into you know, the, the Communist Youth. Uh, he went through kind of their form of ROTC, you know, their, their early military training uh, through the teen years and everything. And so by the time he was 18, he was already in the army. And he was posted as a border guard. And as he related his testimony, he said there were three things that they told us to look for at the border to search people's vehicles, to search you know, thoroughly through all of their things. We're looking for guns and drugs and Bibles. And he said, it seemed odd to me. Guns and drugs I understood. Why are they making such a big deal about Bibles? 
No, they weren't asking to to capture and and take away any fairy tale books. You know, if somebody had Cinderella, you know, children's storybook in their in their luggage, they weren't going to seize that. So while they claimed that the Bible is just full of myths and fairy tales, they seemed awfully concerned about making sure that nobody could have access to it. And he wondered, why is this? What are they so afraid of? One time, he found a Bible in the things that someone was trying to bring into the country, and so he seized it. And then he found opportunity to take it into his own possession and began to read it because he was curious. Why are they so concerned about this? Why is this so different? Why are they so worried about this one book? And he found there the truth that changed his life. And he came to Christ. And today he is a head, he is a lead pastor over many churches, a, a pastor of pastors uh, back in Romania to this day because of the power of that one book. So that just highlights that question, doesn't it? What do people really believe? Why is it that, some, that people are perfectly okay with Snow White and Cinderella and things like that, and they claim that the Bible is full of myths and legends, and yet they are really concerned that people not put that in the public square. They're really concerned that we don't really talk about Christ too much at Christmas time, that we don't put those symbols out there. I think there must be something to it. There must be a reason. And I want to just encourage your faith perhaps with, a, with a, a brief review. This is more, I don't know, perhaps more lesson than message today. But let's just look again at some of the reason for the security of our faith. Because we have throughout society today this attempt this, the, to put forward a bifurcation, a false dilemma. It's always faith versus science. Faith versus reason. Faith versus real history. And I'm here to say very boldly that faith is never at odds with true history. Faith is never at odds with real, logical reason. Faith is never at odds with real science. That's one of the worst bifurcations put forward that you have to choose between some blind faith ideas or real science. Well, I'm a person of science. It's almost an assumed thing when people just says, yeah, well, yeah, well, I believe in science. As though that automatically means that they can't believe the Bible. Well, I believe in science. And I believe in the Bible, and I see no conflict whatsoever. That's a whole other subject. Today, we're looking at the agreement between history and the Bible. Now it's interesting, just a way of note as I've done some reading on this, that in times past, uh, the heads of the British Museum, you know, the British Museum was, was especially in the 18, 1800s, early 1900s, was kind of the leader in the world of historical studies, archaeological studies, and things like that. And they had, you know, the greatest minds doing these things. Well, these great scientists, these archaeologists from the British Museum, when they wanted to investigate historical things in the Middle East that would have happened at any time adjacent to or at the same time as any of the things that are purported to be in the Bible, they actually referenced the Bible 
as their lead to where to look and what to look for. And over and over and over again, there were many things that they found as unique information in the Bible. In other words, they didn't see this in any other source. And so they went looking for it. And they were curious, you know, the Bible's the only place where this is mentioned. So what are the chances that we'll actually find this to be true? And again and again and again, the Bible was proved to be absolutely accurate. So they actually relied on the Bible. When they were looking for something, they couldn't find any other information in any other historical sources, but it's mentioned in the Bible. They would follow the Bible's lead, and they found that they were never disappointed. Hittite civilization was an example. Secular historians went on for a long time, you know, critics saying, now see, the Bible just makes things up, makes up these stories, talks about these Hittites in the Bible, stuff like that. We've never found any evidence whatsoever of any Hittite civilization in the Middle East. And arguing from an absence of data, which is a very weak argument, they were just sure that this was just one of many nails in the coffin of the Bible's veracity and, and so on and so forth until they went and dug around Turkey a little bit deeper and they found massive evidence of a huge Hittite civilization that fits right into the slot of history as we have it in the Bible. The Bible was the only historical source that mentioned it, and there it was. This, play, this has played out just over and over and over again throughout history. So we are not embracing faith without reason or faith that disagrees with history or with science or anything like that. And so I want to just assert or reaffirm some of these things. I didn't give you a handout because there's so much that is pretty solid. I've got, um, I've got four pages solid here, and I couldn't figure out how to reduce it to a, just an outline. So if you really want this, you can, um, Noel, can I put you on the spot? Talk to Noel. Put an order in with Noel, and we'll run some copies. We can do two-sided, and you'll have two pages that, that has all of this here. Uh, uh, so I'm not, even, I'm not going to put you through this this morning. I'm not going to read every passage of Scripture that I'm listing and so on. This would just go on and on and on. I just want to show you these things. And you can jot it down if you want to, or you can get a copy of, of this later. But I just want to show you these things. So, prophecy of the Messiah. So, we're just fo focusing on this one little narrow slice of historical evidence that is foundational to our faith, that gives us you know, assurance of our faith and the, the truth of the Bible, and why we celebrate what we do in such a meaningful way this time of year. So first, I'm going to see if this is working. Is that on? Okay. We're going to look at kind of the, the root of these things that have to do with the Messiah. And this is, uh, we could go back and talk about how God spoke to Adam and Eve at the fall and, and talked about the seed, but kind of the next big event when God begins to give details about the Messiah, the promised one, is when he is speaking to Abraham. And so he chose Abraham, and he spoke to him, and he said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that is, to me, one of the most significant statements in the Old Testament. That helps us to understand 
so much of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is to see that this was God laying out his plan, his program, to work through Abraham's descendants to provide that one that would be a blessing for all the nations of the earth, all the peoples. There are a few other incidents where God repeats these promises and, and, and states one or two things a little, you know, adding on a little bit to his promises to Abraham. But we come to Genesis 22, and we have one of the fullest iterations of God's promises to him. Now, you remember, Genesis 22 is where Abraham met his ultimate challenge of his faith when God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he demonstrated his willingness and his trust. When he even spoke to Isaac, Isaac asked, you know, Father, we have the wood, we have the fire. You know, where's the sacrifice? And, and Abraham said, God will provide the lamb. And so in faith, we're even told later in, in Hebrews that he believed that God would just raise his son up again if necessary because he had promised to make him a great nation through his son Isaac. So he passed the test with flying colors. God, of course, didn't want him to sacrifice Isaac. He was only testing his willingness. And because he passed that test, uh, God says this in Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. The angel of the Lord, and in this case, uh, we believe this is probably pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. There's no, no other stronger basis for, us, for an oath, God's own person. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. In other words, you, can't, you won't be able to count them. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, there's just one thing I want you to notice in particular where I've highlighted offspring uh, uniquely. This word is, he's talking about making, you know, millions and billions of, you know, of offspring beyond what could be counted of, of Abraham's offspring. But here, when he says, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, that, that word in the Hebrew for offering is singular. In your one particular offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so throughout the Old Testament, we have God sending or speaking through prophets, talking about this promised one, this Messiah that would, that would come one day. And there are hundreds of prophecies, but I'm going to focus just on 12 12 particular points. They're actually mentioned in more than one verse sometimes, uh, but there are 12 particular points that have to do with details surrounding the Messiah's birth. And the interesting thing is that mathematicians have, have looked at that and said that if even just these things were prophesied before events and then were all fulfilled in one person, They've done mathematical calculations that go beyond, I, I've never seen so many zeros. I don't, there's not a word for it. You have to use powers, you know, something to the something's power. And, and just, just a handful of these prophecies, if they're fulfilled in one person, uh, one calculation was, uh, consider the state of Texas. Now, any of you have any concept of the size of Texas? Probably compares to Tasmania or something like that. It's... It's a good-sized state among the states in America. Uh, they said 
you would uh, you could fill the state of Texas, the surface of the state of Texas, with quarters, which you know about the same size as a twenty cent piece, and you could fill it a foot deep, about thirty centimeters, and take one quarter and take a sharpie and put a red X on it, and then if you had the power to do so, to just chuck it way out in the middle of the state and then shake the whole state up a little bit. The chances of a person walking blindfolded into the state and picking up that one quarter as their first try, those are the chances that this handful of prophecies could come true in one person by coincidence, by accident. So if these things are true, they're prophesied before the time of Christ and were fulfilled in the one person of Jesus Christ then there is no logical reason whatsoever to not simply just embrace God's word and believe exactly what it says about Jesus. It would be literally irrational to reject it. So let's just have a look at these. First of all, Old Testament prophecy number one. The Messiah would be born in this little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a rather insignificant little town outside of Jerusalem. You know, I, I, I don't want to get in trouble here, but you know, there are different suburbs around here that have, um, have historically had certain reputations to be maybe not as um, upscale or nice as, as others. Now, fairly or unfairly, you can probably think of one. I won't even dare to say one. You, I'm sure something comes to your mind. You know, or somebody would say maybe derogatorily, you know, oh, they're from, <clears throat> you know, or it's there. Maybe I'm not sure I want to go to that shop if that's where it is. All right. So Bethlehem was kind of like that. Well, it was just kind of a poor, it was a little bit of a depressed, a little bit of, of a disenfranchised, to use the modern terminology, disenfranchised community. And yet, the Messiah, this promised one, about whom the whole Old Testament was constantly, you know, was constantly talking, predicting the one that was going to be the blessing to all the nations of the world, who's going to be the Savior of the world, was to be born in this place. Now, that in and of itself would have raised some eyebrows by the, the people who lived at the time and looked at that and said, really? Of all the places God would choose, Bethlehem? Well, that was predicted uh, by the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and he lived and wrote 700 years before the time of Jesus. So 700 years before the birth of Jesus, it was predicted that the Messiah would be born in this little obscure town of Bethlehem. Well, in the New Testament, of course, we see and we sing about the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that's recorded for us in Matthew 2, 1, and in Luke 2, 4 through 7, you're very familiar with those passages. All right, so that's just the one little thing. Now, if somebody was to be a pretender, if somebody came along and decided, you know what, I'm going to put myself forward as the Messiah, because I'd like to have a following, I want to be important, and you know, stuff like that. So if a person was a fraud, can you determine where you're going to be born? Of course not, right? So immediately the possibility of the people who could claim to be the Messiah is narrowed down to the people who are born in this one little town of Bethlehem. That's pretty significant narrowing down of the possibilities immediately. Right? That person can't control that. 
So it had to be something that just happened. All right, second one. The Messiah would descend from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. So it had to be particularly in this direct lineage from Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and down through the line through David, be a descendant of David. Uh, This was told in Isaiah 11. Uh, Isaiah lived and ministered, wrote in 700 B.C. as well. He was a contemporary of Micah. And Jeremiah as well. You see those passages there. Jeremiah 23.5, Jeremiah 33, verses 14 and 15. And as I said, I'm not going to go into every one of these. It would take us a very long time, so you can jot it down. Don't take my word for it. Look it up later. You will see that I'm telling you the truth. In these passages, we have very clear prophecies that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. And Jeremiah also uh, lived and ministered 600 years before Christ. Now, that's, that's easy to say certain dates, but think about it. 600 years is a long time. And these specific details were written down about the Messiah. That's a rather bold move if you don't really know how this is going to play out. Why would a person write that down? You know, I guess they figure, well, I'll be dead by then, so nobody will know the difference. I, I, I don't know. But if this actually was to come true, then that's an awful coincidence that a person would be born in Bethlehem and be particularly a descendant of David, except that, oh, that's where David's family was originally. That's why it's called the city of David. Okay, but not everybody who lived in Bethlehem is from David's family. So we've narrowed it down to people who live in Bethlehem and then narrowed it down further to people who are descended from, the, from David's family. All right. First, we see we're familiar with that. Uh, Jesus descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. And we have those, those uh, lineages given to us, the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. You see very clearly. Now, one of them gives you the family line through Mary, and the other gives you the family line through Joseph. And so, in both cases, both by blood and legally, we have Jesus being direct descendant of the kingly line of David. Third one, the Messiah would be announced by a messenger. You know the word angel literally means messenger? That's exactly what it means. So my wife, Angela, is a messenger. Uh, He would be announced by a messenger. That is laid out for us in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 5, and Malachi 3.1. Now, we already talked about Isaiah being uh, ministering 700 years before Christ, and Malachi was 450 years before Christ, before Jesus. I say Christ because we're so used to referring to him that way, but Christ actually is the Greek word that means Messiah. So I'm kind of being saying the same thing, I guess, Messiah and Messiah. But Jesus is who I'm talking about, and you know that. Well, we see Jesus' ministry was announced by John the Baptist and well, actually, the angels as well, as we even sung about this morning. Okay? But he was for, it was announced, his coming was announced like a town crier or like the runner who would go before uh, royalty. And in old times in Europe, they would run you know, ahead into the town and say, the king is coming, the king is coming. And, and everybody would quickly prepare themselves you know, for, that sac- for that fact. And so John the Baptist was uh, predicted in the Old Testament passages, look them up, that there would be someone who would announce the coming of the Messiah in a, at that time, at the time that he was about to show up on the scene. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. 
So there you have your passages, Matthew 3, and Luke 3, and John 1. Fourth, Messiah would heal many, including the blind. This is predicted in Isaiah 35, five, first part of 6, and again in 40, chapter 42, verses 1 through 7. Now this is significant, especially because the prophet talked about him healing the blind, because there were some cures for a whole variety of other illnesses, serious illnesses that people might experience, but to this day, today, there is no cure for a person who is truly and completely blind. We've got hearing aids, we've got glasses for, you know, bad eyesight, we've, we've got things for all kinds of other things like that, but, you, but they still cannot heal a blind man or woman. And so this Messiah was someone who would heal the blind. That was really a significant marker. And yet we see that Jesus healed all ailments, including blindness. And we have these accounts in Matthew 15, 29 to 31. And these are just like a, key, a couple of key examples involving blindness. John 9, 1 through 33. Now, if you're calculating, you should realize that we've already narrowed the possibilities down very significantly. Someone born in Bethlehem, someone descended from David, um, someone who would have actually somebody who would come before them and... and and without asking, without paying for them or anything, just, just saying, hey, this one is coming. We, we talked uh, Friday night even about the fact that the John the Baptist says a baby rejoiced at the, at the sound of the voice of the Messiah's mother when Mary came into Elizabeth's presence. So from, from the womb, he was already announcing Christ's coming. Now you have someone who has all those things true of them and has the ability to heal all types of ailments, including blindness, a true miracle. Fifth prophecy we're looking at today, the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend. Now, is that something you can orchestrate very well for yourself or that you would orchestrate for yourself if you're a fraud trying to put yourself forward as a Messiah? Someone who would betray you to your death? Who would go that far? Just to be known as a Messiah. Uh, well, you know, they'll love me after I'm gone. That's usually not the goal for a fraud. It's usually not the way they're working. And yet it says the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend. We see this in Psalm 41, verse 9, David writing 1,000 years before Jesus. We see this, of course, come true in the account of Judas, which is brought to us in all four of the Gospels. There are many things that are in one or two Sometimes three of the Gospels, the betrayal of Christ by Judas is recorded for us in all four of the Gospels. The sixth, did you get that? If anybody's writing down, I don't know if you wanted to put your wave at me if you wanted a moment more. All right, great. The sixth one, Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Now, there's betrayal, but now we even have the detail of exactly how this is going to take place and exactly the price that was going to be used 30 pieces of silver. This was predicted by the prophet, prophet Zechariah 500 years before the event. Now, I mean, a person could say, yeah, well, you know, that was, a, that was an easy guess because 30 pieces of silver was the price of, a, you know, a slave or something like that. Well, the economy was probably a little different 500 years earlier. So that's, that's not necessarily an explanation for that. 
course, we see that was fulfilled exactly. Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver for the betrayal of Jesus. We see that in Matthew 26, 15, and 16. But not only that, but we have the prediction that the 30 pieces of silver would be thrown down in the temple. Now, who would do that? Why would you think to write that down as a prediction relating to the Messiah before the events? The person is going to be paid 30 pieces of silver to betray him, but then they're going to change their mind, and they're going to come, and they're going to throw the money down on the floor in the temple. That's rather specific. And that that money would be taken and used to buy a potter's field. Now, we're really getting into the weeds of detailed predictions for something that was put forward before the events. And we saw that fulfilled. Now, that was put forward by Zechariah. Remember how old Zechariah was? How long before Christ? 500 years. Half a millennium. That he wrote that, those particular details, before they took place, and we see them recorded for us in the Bible. Now, this is all just to arm you. Okay, so I hope you write some of this down or that you get the copy later on. Because when people challenge the, the sensibility of your faith, you can know with absolute certainty, and while I'm saying things rather emphatically now, you may be a little more gentle, but you can, you can put forward these, these facts before them to help them to understand the truth of the Bible. The Messiah would be silent before his accusers. This Messiah wouldn't argue to save his own skin after he'd been betrayed bought for 30 pieces of silver. Predicted by Isaiah 700 years before the event, and of course we see that in all four of the gospel accounts. Excuse me. <coughs> if someone would be willing to get me some water, I can tell I'm going to have trouble here. <coughs> Cruising along, number nine, Messiah would be whipped and pierced. Again, you're narrowing it down from person born in Bethlehem, person born from David's family, uh, all of these other things that we, we have seen, these particular things, and now, you're, now all of those things have to be true of this person in addition to the fact that after they've been betrayed, don't offer any argument. Thank you very much. Now, the way that they would be killed. Again, not something a person, a fraud would would organize for themselves just to prove that they are the Messiah. So they would be whipped and pierced. This is predicted, Psalm 22, a thousand years before the events took place in Jesus' life and by Isaiah 53, 5, 700 years before. And of course we know that Jesus was whipped by the Roman cat of nine tails and he was nailed to a Roman cross, a form of execution that didn't even exist yet at the time that the prophets wrote about it, nor was that particular whip. Again, this account in all four of the Gospels that this took place. Tenth, the Messiah would have no broken bones and would have his side pierced. Here again, this is kind of a double prophecy here, so it's more facts, more factors going into it, but uh, it was very common when the Romans executed somebody by crucifixion. They would let them suffer for as long as possible. Uh, they, would, they would put them in all kinds of contorted positions. 
and they would have to push up on nails that are going through their ankle bones, typically, in order to to get the weight off of their rib cage so that they could catch a breath. So they have to pull up on the nails that were here. They usually drove them right in here, not really up here in the fleshy tissue of the hands, but all of this was considered hand, really, in the language and the culture. Uh, everything from the wrist on is part of the hand. It was typically, uh, archaeologists have, have found, historians have found that they put it right here in between the, in the bones there so that it would really hang on good. And then they would typically take the feet and turn them sideways and go through the ankles, both of them together. So for a person to catch a breath because they're hanging from this, it would collapse their rib cage. They would have to push up from the, the nails in their ankles and pull up from the nails in their, in their wrists just to catch a breath. Every breath. And they could last for hours, sometimes even more than a day, suffering this way. Very cruel form of death, which our Savior did voluntarily for us, by the way. So it was predicted that he would die this way. This form of death didn't exist yet at the time that this was predicted so long before. The Romans' practice then was when they wanted somebody to be done already, because if they were really tough and they really hung on for a long time, pulling themselves up and breathing this way, when they wanted to finish it, they would come around with a club or a mallet and they would smash their shin bones so that they couldn't push up anymore. So the normal way for a person who was crucified to die would involve broken bones. But it's prophesied that Messiah would die this way, but without broken bones. But instead that his side would be pierced. That's different. And yet, while this was written a thousand years and five hundred years, these details before the events, we see exactly that that's what happened with Christ. They did not break his bone, and instead, the centurion drove a spear up into his heart. That detail is given to us in John. I know it's graphic, and I'm sorry, but we need to appreciate sometimes what Christ came to do for us. When he came to be born of a baby, it wasn't to create some beautiful little symbol to sing about at Christmas time. He came to suffer and die to pay the penalty for our sin. He came with purpose. Nobody could stop him from his purpose. He was not a victim. He was not a martyr. He was a willing sacrifice. Knowing full well, Scripture tells us what was going to happen, he went forward and faced those people who came to arrest him in the garden. Number 11, Messiah would be killed with thieves. So here's another additional detail. Predicted 700 years before the event that there would be thieves crucified with him. And in fact, that is exactly what happened. He was crucified between two thieves, accounted for in all four Gospels. Finally, number 12. The Messiah would be raised alive from the dead. I'll try to top that one. Anybody who was trying to be a fake Messiah, get yourself back alive again after you're dead. A thousand years before the event, that was predicted very clearly in the Psalms and amongst other, other prophecies. That's certainly not the only one, but it's clear. And we see that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, when Paul writes about it in, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the fact that it was, it was a well-known fact and his time all the people who were alive to see these events 
still alive when Paul's writing, and he wrote it as a well-known fact that on one occasion, over 500 people saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion. So there were plenty of eyewitnesses around, plenty of people who could have said, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. They're just making up this whole thing about Jesus being risen from that. There were hundreds of people who saw him at one time. There was absolute corroboration available for the fact that Jesus was seen on multiple occasions, but once by a huge crowd of people. That's that First Corinthians 15 account. All right, so now just a little bit here because the next thing that happens is when somebody is a cynic, somebody is a critic, a skeptic, and doesn't want to believe what the Bible says, they look at all of those very clear prophecies from long before fulfilled exactly in the person and the life of Christ, of Jesus Christ, and there's just, I mean, there's just no excuse to not accept everything that the Bible says based on that. So they look for an escape route. Well, what can I do? Well, this is what has been done in the past. They say, well, you know what? Those probably were not authentic prophecies from that long before. This is probably people who just, after the fact, pretended to be the prophet writing 700 years before, 500 years before, 450 years before, 1,000 years before. They, they just made up these, these documents later on to reflect back and try to pretend to be something that happened special. You know, it's just coming with naturalistic assumptions that you know, supernatural things can't be true, that can't be the God really doing real things. It was just, it's, they're fraudulent documents, is, was the argument. Okay, let's have a look. Let's look at Isaiah, because several things came from Isaiah, right? Okay, so these following facts are just a few among many that verify the authenticity of Isaiah as one who lived that far in advance and wrote these things. Now, I realize I put a lot on the screen here, so the, the font is small. I will read it, though. So hopefully you can get this. First of all, it's that Isaiah, the son of Amos, authored his book, his prophetic book, at about 700 years B.C., or today people want to say B.C.E. First of all, the ancient author Yeshua ben Sirach, this is a, an ancient uh, Jewish author whose writings have not been questioned. Uh, he wrote approximately 180 B.C., all right, so still almost 200 years before Jesus' time. This is a well-known ancient document where he referred to Isaiah and his written prophecies and how some of them had already come true, which was true, not because he prophesied about many things besides Messiah. Uh, for instance, Jerusalem being conquered by the ba Babylonians which had happened a little over 100 years after Isaiah wrote. So here you have someone well after Isaiah, referring to Isaiah, referring to things that Isaiah had predicted that came true after the fact. And this person, this historical author, is writing about this almost 200 years before Jesus. So you cannot throw the book of Isaiah away as a fraud. He was already referred to by extra-biblical historical documents well before the time of Jesus. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into the Greek, was actually produced around 250 years B.C. This is a completely uncontested 
absolute historical fact. No historian worth his salt, no historian who holds a degree and can keep their degree would even argue this. The whole Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek around 250 BC. And that includes the complete 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. It was all already there, 250 years before Christ came along. It was in that translation. It's considered authentic Christian, authentic scripture by all Jewish scholars at the time, already accepted. And we have two complete Isaiah manuscripts that were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, if you remember the story or not, there was a shepherd boy in 1947 out there in the, in the wilderness east of, of Jerusalem in that area. And, and he was where the Qumran community was, now we know. Uh, he was taking his sheep and goats and around through there. And, and what do you do when you're a shepherd boy and the sheep and goats are munching, you know? You pick up a rock and you see how good you are at throwing it at things, right? And, and they came across, there's a whole series of caves out there. So he took a, took a rock and he, you know, I wonder how deep this cave is. And so he just chucked the rock into the cave as hard as, hard as he could. You know, just like you drop something somewhere, you know, how long does it take till you hear it hit the bottom? So he chucked a rock in there and he heard, <laughs> something broke in there. He went in and investigated and found all these clay jars. Well, that led to a whole huge excavation through the caves in that area that lasted for years, and they found just hundreds and hundreds of, of old, old manuscripts of the Old Testament Scripture, much older than any that ever had access to prior to 1947. And so, you know, they tested the, the material that it was written on and the ink used and everything like this and, and dated it as so ancient, so well before the time of Christ. And it verified, by the way, all the text as we had it already in, of the Old Testament Scripture that there's just no contest, there's no question. These things were confirmed by historians to be dated at least these manuscripts that were found in the Dead Sea area, at least 150 years before Christ. These things, these were all written. So in other words, everything that you find in the Old Testament, all the prophecies, all the books, all the writings of the prophecies, every single bit of it has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt by highly qualified, highly regarded historians as having already been completely intact a minimum of 120, actually 250 years prior to the time that Jesus came along. So there, a person who, who would try to say that's made up prophecy stuff just doesn't have a leg to stand on. It's an absolutely ignorant statement. I'm sorry, but it's an absolutely ignorant statement to make. So you have really solid ground in trusting your Old Testament and the prophecies that are there. How about Micah? Oh, by the way, this is just a picture. This is one little slice of, of the Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls that's um, held in Jerusalem in the museum there, okay? It's pretty cool. All right, Micah. I'll, I'll move faster. The following facts affirm the traditional view that Micah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, wrote in the 8th century B.C., the Septuagint, once again, includes the book of Micah. As I was just talking about, all of those Old Testament books and the Septuagint, they got translated 250 years before Christ into Greek. Micah, every bit of his book is there already, 250 years before Christ. 
That should be enough, really. The Jewish, by the way, non-Christian historian Josephus, a very highly valued and regarded historian. As I, as I said, he wasn't even Christian. Uh, he, he lived in A.D. 37 to 100. He referred to Micah and his message, as well as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and others, indicating the traditional times of life and ministry as we know them, and some of the prophecies that had already come true prior to his time. So we have this extra-biblical historian who wasn't even a Christian trying to prove the New Testament or anything like that, who is a matter of record for that. And we have Micah manuscripts, also copies that were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and confirmed by historians to be a minimum of 50 years before the time of Christ, the particular, some of the Micah, Micah, separate Micah scrolls. All right, other prophetic books. Well, every Old Testament book except Esther was represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls and dated prior to Jesus' life and work. And the Jewish non-Christian historian, another one, Philo of Alexandria in Egypt, uh, who lived uh, right across the time of Christ, born about 20 B.C., died about 50 A.D., quoted the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Zechariah, assuming the traditional authors and their times of life and ministry. All right, so hopefully that has made it clear. Old Testament, reliable. New Testament documents. The New Testament historical books, the Gospels and Acts, are particularly the ones we call historical books, are excellent, mutually verifying. In other words, they agree with each other. They were written by different authors. First century records of the life and ministry of Jesus and of the establishment of the church. We have these great historical books that, as I said, have filled in details that historians have found nowhere else. And when they got digging, they found, sure enough, just like the Bible said, again and again and again. Now, there are those who want to suggest that Bible books can't be just taken as a historical book. Someone might say, well, it's right here in the Bible, and they'll say, yeah, well, that's the Bible. And they just unilaterally disbelieve or will not trust it just because it's the Bible. Whereas they don't question any of the other ancient texts. Well, so that represents, number one, an inconsistent standard that somehow the Bible has to be verified by other, by other extra-biblical things to be believed when they don't apply that rule to every other ancient text. And so it really just it, it represents an, uh, an arbitrary, unargued philosophical bias. In other words, they're just coming to the, from the place of, I just decided I don't believe it. There's nothing logical, there's nothing historical, there's nothing rational about it. They just decided... I don't trust the Bible because it's religious or something. whatever the reason is. It's not a real reason. It doesn't stand up in court. It doesn't stand up in, in academia whatsoever to just say, well, you can't trust what the Bible says just because it's only the Bible saying it. When it comes to Caesar's writings on the wars and presents facts that no other writing includes, they use that to fill in their history books. They take it as historical fact. They don't say, oh, well, there's no other thing to verify or to corroborate with that, so we don't believe it. They accept it. But the Bible doesn't get that benefit. But not one detail in the New Testament's historical record has ever been proven wrong in spite of a really great deal of concerted effort to do so. 
you're familiar with the story of Ben Hur, the novel became a movie. You know, that was that was a historian who was also a Civil War general in America, but he was a historian who was atheist and determined to prove once for all the Bible was wrong, that it was based on poor historical data, inaccuracies, made-up stories by some shepherds out in the field, some, you know, somewhere back in Israel in the second century or the third century or something like that. He was going to debunk it once forever. And so he dug in and used all of his significant professional historical skill to prove the Bible wrong and found it's absolutely right. Could not find a single error, and he became a Christian, and that's why he wrote the book Ben-Hur. That book was meant to be his ultimate uh, tome to disprove and to destroy Christianity and the Bible once and for all. It turns out to be, as the subtitle says, a tale of the Christ. Many have tried. All have failed. Josephus, mentioned him already before, referred to uh, Jesus' life, his crucifixion, reports of his resurrection, Josephus writes about, and many more of the same details recorded in the New Testament text as do other extra-biblical letters and reports from the first century. And the New Testament documents, this is the last big point here, the New Testament documents enjoy far better manuscript evidence or support than any of the unchallenged ancient documents. Here are a few, just in a little comparison. I don't know if you can see this or not. Top left-hand corner, yeah, we've got Homer. Homer's Iliad, written 800 years before Christ. The earliest copies, the actual manuscripts that we have, are from 400 B.C. So there's a gap there from the original writing, which no longer exists. The autographs are no longer in our possession. So the best copies, the earliest copies we have, are from 400 years after his writing, and we have 643 copies available. Homer's Iliad is not questioned as, historically, the writing of Homer from that time in history. Herodotus wrote his history uh, 400, between 480 and 425 B.C. The earliest copies available from A.D. 90, 900 rather, 1,350 years later, there are only eight copies and nobody questions the value of Herodotus's history. They use that to fill in their history books. Plato and his various writings written about 400 BC, earliest copies, 900 AD, 1300 years gap, only seven manuscripts. Does anybody question the writings of Plato? It gets reprinted and, and read and studied all over the place, just assumed as the accurate document. Caesar's Gallic Wars, written 100 to 44 years before Christ. Earliest copies, again, 900 A.D., a 1,000-year gap, only 10 copies accepted as absolute history. The New Testament documents, written A.D., A.D., 50 to 100. We have 114, uh, we have pieces from approximately 100, year 114. We have whole books from 200, we have most of the New Testament by 250, uh, I mean, you know, manuscripts dating to that date, and all of the New Testament, we have complete documents that go back to 325. I'm just talking about the New Testament, because we already dealt with the Old Testament before. This is just the New Testament. 
Okay, so the time gaps we're talking about here, 50 years, 100 years, 150 years, 250 years, compare that to the gaps above for the other ancient documents. How many copies do we have to verify to cross-reference for the New Testament? 5,686. Compared to what? Seven of Plato? Plato's not questioned. The New Testament, somebody say, oh, well, that's just in the Bible. Can't believe that is history. Why? Challenge your friends and family lovingly, gently, with the facts. Help them to see that these false dichotomies of faith, you know, believing in the Bible, the Bible's message, is it somehow at odds with history or science or reason. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have every reason to believe exactly what the Bible says. It has been verified over and over and over again, and not to mention the change that it's made in our lives. Those of us who know Christ, every one of us can talk about the change that's made in our lives. People notice that we are different. And uh, look amongst us here, I don't, I don't see any radicals. I don't see anybody who's really weird amongst us. I, I suppose it's, you know, it's relative. It takes one to know one or I don't know. But, 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 I mean, I don't think any of you are probably going around acting really, truly strange around your family and, and, and your coworkers. And yet, they think you're very different for some reason. And they know plenty of other people who follow other religions, and they may not think they're nearly as strange as you. Why? There must be something to it. Well, we should be different, obviously. We should reflect Christ. We should reflect his character. We should reflect his love. But we especially need to share his message. And so this is why we celebrate, as we do at Christmas time, why we make such a big deal, why there are so many songs, why there are so many gatherings and services and messages and, and all of these things, because it's not a fairy tale. It's not just a sweet little children's book story. We're talking about events that split history in half, that changed everything, and has changed our own lives. And I hope that is true for everyone here and everyone who listens. Uh, if you have not accepted Christ, you really, I, I challenge you, read the Bible. Test it. Try it. I have no worry whatsoever. There have been so many brilliant individuals who have tried to change, who have tried to challenge the Bible and who ended up becoming Christians who absolutely believe the Bible. So I, I, I welcome all challengers to the Bible. Okay? Christians, yes, we're imperfect. You might know a, a hypocritical Christian. You might know a Christian who's a jerk or a freak or wh whatever. But I'm talking about the Bible and its message. Challenge it, try it, read it, test it. You will find that Jesus truly is the reason for the season that we celebrate. Let's pray. Father, I just